Thanks for tuning in to the Beer Mighty Things podcast, your place for education and happenings for all things craft beverage. I'm your host, Kyle Reiner. I hope you obtained some value from our show because, as you know, far better it is to Beer Mighty Things. Cheers. Welcome into the Beer Mighty Things podcast. Today we are speaking with a legend. I'm a little starstruck, I'm not going to lie. Uh, at age 28, she was the youngest person ever, the first female ever, and the fourth ever master Cicerone, Nicole Ernie. Nicole, welcome in. Thanks. Hey, happy to be here. I'm excited to have you. At, uh, you know, at age 28, you were already daring mighty things as we, you know, talked about this. This podcast is what it's all about. So, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are multiple levels within the, the Cicerone program. And, and, you know, how'd you end up there and what was that like? That's correct. Yeah, there are four levels now um, in the Cicerone program. When I took the master exam, it was the third level. Uh, and the fourth level was added in between certified and master. So there's uh, the certified, uh, or there's the certified beer server, which is really basic. Like anybody that serves beer or touches beer in a restaurant, works in a tap room should, should have that certification. It's all online. Um, and it's a really, really important set of baseline information. Um, and then from there you have the certified Cicerone. And I find that most people who are serious, uh, about having a career in beer and uh, especially on the front, front of the house side, um, We'll gravitate towards that. It's a, a much more rigorous ex in-person exam. Uh, and then the advanced exam was added a few years ago because uh, the there was just this horrible attrition rate of people taking the master exam where the passing rates were extremely low. Uh, and so uh, to kind of am ameliorate that, this intermediate step was added and um i do grade master exams now and since that uh that step was inserted as a requirement as a prerequisite um there's been much better performance on the master exam um and you know which is you're not just letting people slide through now are you <laughs> absolutely not <laughs> uh yeah when when we when but there was just a marked difference you know i went from seeing like you know, beer and food pairing essays that were like, I don't, I'm not even sure how you pass certified sister own exam to like now, you know, people are, are more technical and, and more evocative. So yeah, it's, um, it's been, that's been cool to kind of see that program continue to grow and change. Are there prerequisites to, to even, you know, all right. So that level one, like, do I have to complete a couple tasks or be in the field or can anybody just go take level one? Anyone can do it. I think when Ray first started the program, I think that there was some kind of like requirement that people worked in the beer industry, but it was something that couldn't really be enforced easily. And I think there's also a realization that getting a certified beer server certification could be kind of like, you know, proof that you had some baseline information. And I do, I have spoken to people that feel that that was part of their entry into the beer industry was having that certification. Cause it just shows to your employer, like, Hey, I'm actually excited about beer. I went out and bought this, you know, $80 test and took it, took it upon myself to take it and get the certification. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's definitely also true with certified Cicerone. I know somebody that passed that exam while they were in the middle of a job search and got 30% more callbacks right away when that was added to his resume. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, but the first level, uh, no, anybody can take it. Like I like to over-prepare for things like that. And so I, I spent quite a bit of time studying it, but I think I ended up taking it, you know, in my jammies and <laughs> in front of the computer <laughs> one morning. <laughs> so what about the test itself? So as you get into the master, you're going in, you know, when you were doing it, it was level three master. Um, that exam is quite grueling. How long does that take? How long to take you yeah, versus so other people? It's a full two-day exam. Uh, and it's it's changed a bit in the way it's split up now. Uh, and 
I can't quite remember how it's changed because uh, I was working with the organization for a while. Was it 2012 when you had completed it? 2011. 2011. Yeah. Okay. So I got, they did certified sister in 2009 and then uh, certified, or sorry, master sister in 2011. And it was in fall, November. I took the okay. exam. But uh, the, uh, yeah, at that time it was, um, it's a grueling exam, but the schedule is also hectic because it was, four writing sessions that were, were three hours long. And, um, you'd get pulled out of that writing session and taken to do an oral exam. So you were like writing, 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 and then they call your name and you got to put your pen down, go do the oral exam, totally switch gears. You know, you have to like run. Is it like, are you timed? You got 30 (laughs) seconds to run to the other side of the room and yeah, there's there's a, a American Gladiator aspect to it. Yeah, you know, they set up an obstacle course in the brewery. They shoot. They're shooting tennis balls. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's like you go to take your oral exam, and it's not just like some random examiner. It's like, oh hey, John Mallet. <laughs> like I'm going to tell you everything I know about about brewing now. Huh. It's. Uh, a little bit intimidating, you know, like our, our master examiners are some, some pretty, uh, High profile pretty people. intense industry luminaries. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and Ray Daniels has been doing us, you know, 25 years of brewing, judging, studying. I mean, these guys are no joke. Exactly. Exactly. So I was a, I was a nervous wreck the entire time. That was, that was another question I was to say, you know, as you're taking this, are you feeling good about how you're performing or are you freaking out or do they give you a beer? Like, what do you do? <laughs> you do get beer. Uh, there are, there were two panels, tasting panels a day. And I think they've changed it around so that you do all your writing one day and then all your tasting panels and, uh, oral exams and next so you had a little more downtime. Um, um, but at the time it was like two days with everything kind of mixed up and, uh, yeah, you get to, uh, have, um, a tasting panel, which is not exactly getting served a beer. Um, uh, but luckily the exams usually take place in a beer friendly place. So I think now they do most of them at, uh, at the Cicerone headquarters, but there's two breweries within short walking distance. So, is that Chicago? Yeah, there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely uh, beer involved after. Although I can say a lot of folks that, uh, a lot of my cohorts drink substantially on the night in between exams and I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine that helps the next day. And this is uh, what, 14 hours about total? Yeah, exactly. So you get an hour for lunch and you know, other than that, it's just writing, writing, writing. So, uh, I, I definitely wrote up until the very end of every single writing period. What are you writing about? So, uh, there's the areas of coverage in the Cicerone kind of like stay the same. It's just that you go deeper with each level. So let's see if I can uh, remember them off the top of my head. (laughs) We have, there's a, there's a test at the end of this podcast. (laughs) there's keeping and serving beer there's beer styles uh ingredients and flavor beer and food pairing what am i forgetting i always leave one out (laughs) that's that's part of beer flavor yeah beer flavor keeping and serving beer beer styles um beer and food pairing oh ingredients and process yeah that's all of them I can't remember which one I left out earlier. <laughs> anyway, so it's only been nine years. I mean, come on. So, you know, on the certified beer server exam, you know, you might get a multiple choice question about American IPA, but on uh, the certified Cicerone exam, you might get a like kind of mysterious fill in the blank question about, you know, where the answer might be like, you know, some somewhat obscure style that's on the list, like we heavy or something. And then on the master exam, it's like, here's three styles, discuss their development, you know, where, what ingredients they have in common, compare and tra- contrast them, discuss their flavor profiles, and then name four examples of each, including ones from at least two, at least two or three countries, you know? So, uh, it's intense, but, uh, 
for the most part, when I was taking that exam, I was having a lot of fun because I was just excited about the questions and writing about these topics because it's all stuff that I thought about so much. Um, and it was kind of nice to have a venue to discuss these like really dorky minutia, like details about beer that people normally don't want to talk about. Uh, so I, I mostly enjoyed it. Um, I was a nervous wreck the whole time. That's just me. Um, when I'm energized and then I, um, there was, there were some questions that I was like, I didn't do good on that, you know, but I just did, did my best. And I guess it was good enough. So (laughs) you're the master. You're also a beer judge, correct? I am. So I became a BJCP beer judge first. So out, out of college, I got a job at an awesome brand new beer bar that was opening in Oakland called the Trappist. I basically didn't want to work in my, in my field. It was 2007 that I graduated with a degree in journalism and it was a very dark, horrible time to try to enter that world. You know, I wanted to be like a beat reporter. (laughs) Like That just wasn't a viable option anymore that that industry was was changing uh, and I, I just kind of ran out of energy to pursue it so I and I also decided hey like I don't want to blog for free I want to I want to make money and pay off my student loan so I uh, entered the uh, I decided to enter the bar industry uh, so I took some crappy jobs to get experience and then um, found out that this person was uh, Chuck Stilfin and his partner at the time, Aaron Porter, were opening the Trappist in Oakland. And Chuck played in this uh, punk band from Boston called Gang Green. So uh, I'm kind of involved in the, the punk and underground metal community here in the Bay Area as well. Uh, so it's like, oh, wow, a dude from Gang Green is opening a Belgian beer bar. And so it's like, you know, this punk rock guy opening my, uh, opening my favorite kind of beer bar. And uh, so I, I kind of went for that. And um, got a job there. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm a college grad. If I'm going to work at a beer bar, like I need to work at a beer bar, you know, yeah. and this is a special place. They had, you know, 150 bottles, you know, I, I wanted to be a steward, all this beer. So, uh, I decided at the time to start pursuing, uh, the, the beer judge certification program. Uh, so my, my husband is a home brewer. Uh, we kind of did that together. So it was super fun to just be, really engrossed in studying something together. We, we had a lot of fun with that. And while I was studying, I found out about the Cicerone program because it had basically just launched that January. Right away when I heard somebody talking about the Cicerone program, and of course I knew who Ray Daniels was and stuff like that, but right away when I, when I heard them talking about that, I just something clicked in my brain and I knew I wanted to be a master Cicerone. I love it. I think part of, I think part of that, it was the same reason that it w- becoming a BJCP judge was so important to me. Not only is it really interesting, um, but as a very young woman behind the bar, I didn't get the automatic credit that, um, you know, other folks behind the bar got. You get some burly guy coming off and, and, you know, he's comes over, sits down at the bar and he's like, you know, you know, this young girl here, she doesn't know what she's talking about. And you're like, check this out, man. (laughs) Yeah. I had to kind of aggressively defend myself. And that's also like, I think some people would just be like, okay, whatever. But I was like, no, I know my shit. Like, (laughs) let me show you. Uh, So getting that credential, I think was a really important, it was important to me in that way, but it's also important to myself because, you know, when you're in an environment where people are constantly questioning you or assuming that you don't know something, you kind of slowly get gaslit over time. Basically you start questioning yourself like, well, do I know, do I know my shit? Hmm. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I think I know more than I do. And I'm really, I really have, you know, I'm the emperor with no clothes, you know? So like, uh, so it was important to me from that perspective too. Uh, and I, I've definitely found that, you know, learning and verifying my learning is something that, that I have to do just to like beat back that very pervasive force. That's part of our culture. So yeah. yeah. Don't judge a book by its cover, everybody. What the heck? Exactly. You still enjoy uh, Belgian beers then? I do. You know, I took, um, 
the last several years, like I've just been, you know, drifting into the IPAs and even the hazies. It took me a minute to warm up for them, but I started tasting good ones. I'm like, yeah, this is cool. You know? So I've been on, on that trip with everybody else. Uh, but recently, uh, especially like last, last fall, I started really getting hankering for, uh, Belgian dark strong ales again. And, uh, I've been enjoying more traditional Belgian beer styles again. Part of the problem with finding those beers though, is like back in, uh, you know, back in, in 2008, 2009 like Belgian beer was pretty trendy and you could find it around and those bars were busy and those distributors were cleaning out their their stores pretty fast like there was a nice turnaround and those beers were you could find them relatively fresh and right now imported beers are not popular a lot of the brands that I really like aren't even really imported anymore and uh, when you get them they're not always so fresh. So that's been, that's been tough because once, when you know what a beer tastes like at the top of its game, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to look past the oxidation. So. Yeah. It's gotta be tough for you to sit down and have a beer without really like thinking too much about it and the science of it and the flavors of it. It can be. Yeah. I, I can switch it off. And sometimes that's frustrating because sometimes I just want to switch it off and then people want to ask me questions. I'm like, nah, it's, I switched that off. I'm, I'm drinking beer right now. Um, but let's get after it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, like there are some days where I just, I just can't, I get, you know, I'll be preoccupied with some flavor from malt that's been bothering me and I'll just taste it in everything. And then I just need to take a break before COVID I, I didn't drink much during the week. I might, I would taste a little bit of beer at work, maybe not even have a beer in the evening. Now that's changed a little bit, yeah, but you. I've actually been playing a lot with cocktails, um, uh, beer, thinking about beer really hard when this all first started kind of, kind of bummed me out, you know, like I, I got furloughed from my job. Like, you know, it's, it was, um, yeah, it was uh, kind of tough to get in that space to just like be really enthusiastic and excited about beer. Uh, so I, I started playing with some other stuff. But uh, one thing that really helped was uh, the craft the the Brewers Association did uh, the Craft Brewers Conference online and just yeah. listening to some of those research presentations and some of the like interesting cutting edge stuff about hop flavors like. I'm getting, I'm getting pretty jazzed again. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit to uh, rekindle that fire. What is it about say, you know, being a beer tender that, that drew you to that versus, you know, serving up cocktails at a, at a restaurant or, or a different kind of bar. You said, Hey, I want to serve beer. I'm all about the beer, but why, why beer over the cocktails? Oh yeah. Well, I already, um, I was already excited about beer and I, uh, at that time, like I was already spending, weekends, you know, driving around Northern California and going to breweries. Back then there were, you know, a dozen and a handful, you know, like, (laughs) so you could go to, I had gone to almost every brewery in Northern California at that time. There were a few that I I never made it to a little farther North. Uh, Now, you know, you could spend months and not hit them all. So, um, that was, um, it was an exciting time to be part of the, part of the beer industry. Um, but yeah, I was, I was super excited about beer, you know, before I turned 21, I thought I would get deeper into, into wine as I became able to legally drink and buy alcohol. Um, but I'd already like done a little bit of home brewing and I found that, you know, the cost to entry there, um, in terms of just money, like beer's way cheaper. You can buy like some of the best beer in the world for like $3, you know, like at a a a bottle. You can buy bad IPAs now for $7. if that helps. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. You can buy, you can (laughs) spend like $25 on a four pack of terrible beer. Um, but you can also buy a really good beer for, you know, for cheap still, you can also buy really, really good beer for in four packs for $25. By the way, I didn't mean to diss that. (laughs) Um, some of my favorite beer, you know, I I was able to like start learning about beer and I was, uh, going to this cool bar. was in my neighborhood at the time that, um, has since closed, but has become another really cool beer bar called the golden squirrel 
before that it was called Barclays. There was just kind of a community of brewers that hung out there. So I'd be going there and drinking all these different beers and, um, I, you know, making buddies with the bartender and just, uh, learning about beer. They had like a beer, one of those beer tasting clubs, you know? Yeah. Um, so part of that and earn, earn some, some of my awards through that while I was participating in it. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I got, uh, I just had this awesome community of people to like hang out, and learn beer with. Um, you know, that's where I met, um, chef Bruce Patton, the, the beer chef. He's kind of famous here on the West coast. Yeah. What's he like? Fun guy. He's, he's so fun. He's like, he's a character. Like he, uh, I forget the name of the shoes. He's like, always wears these like seventies white loafers and okay. he always has no sleeves. He has got this like mustache and, you know, he's got all these one liners. He's got an image. Yeah, he's got all these one-liners, and um, but he's he's a blast to hang out with. Uh, so, uh, so you know, it's, it's just meeting lots of folks like that, and like I remember uh, hanging out a lot with uh, James Costa, who's the uh, head brewer at uh, Half Moon Bay Brewing Company now. I think he was working at Bear Republic at the time. Yeah. Um, but you know, he's he's always been like super supportive and cool and like, you know, doing collaboration, uh, brews with, uh, Nathan. And like, I remember I, I learned a lot from him just talking about beer, you know, at like 11 PM on a Thursday or whatever. Yeah. You know? Uh, so yeah, I was hanging out there a lot. Racer five, uh, was one of those beers that kind of like flipped my world upside down probably in like oh, yeah. 2014 or so. I was like, Holy shit. Yeah. And that, that's probably when that beer was starting to hit the West coast in force, but like the, the late aughts, I think were like prime time for that beer. Uh, it was, it was, there wasn't really much out there like it. Um, you know, there's racer five and Pliny, you know, yep. uh, I, I, at that time I gravitated way more towards citrus flavors. And so I, I preferred the racer five a little bit. It was a whole era. <laughs> yeah. It's all changing. So I know you mentioned that, you know, right now you're, you're at home, you're furloughed with the, the situation that we're in, but you are the quality yeah. sensory and education projects coordinator at Alvarado street brewery in Monterey and Salinas, California. Um, yeah. Tell me about that. What do you, what do you do? What is that job? Yeah. So basically, um, you know, Alvarado Street, it's a small brewery, uh, projected to hit 10,000 barrels this year, but with a huge focus on continuous improvement quality, uh, and using, you know, using accessing and using next generation ingredients, you know, like interesting hops and, um, just, you know, innovating on ways to improve hop aroma and, you know, we'll, we try a lot of stuff basically. Uh, so they had been one of my clients when I was doing uh, sensory consulting. So I okay. worked with several breweries just doing like a tailored um, set of uh, sensory courses just to kind of bring everybody's level up and get people on the same page and also find out like, Hey, you're, random tasting room person has the strongest palate and you're on your entire business. Like use, use that more. Right. So I um, had been talking with them for a while and uh, I had been looking for a brewery to kind of build a sensory program and then also use some of the other quality skills that I've picked up over the years. Because when I got master Cicerone, like I was excited about it, but I just didn't feel done. Like I was like, I started getting really interested in, in beer quality. And so I, I pursued a lot of education to kind of position myself to be able to better help breweries with, with small breweries specifically with quality issues. Yeah. I, I headed over there, you know, my roles kind of bopped around a little bit, but uh, I have been building our sensory panel slowly improving certain sensory processes like at line testing and, uh, the way we perform our diacetyl tests, which I think... So the buttery popcorn flavor? Exactly. So this is a really important process uh, control point in, in breweries. So um, you have to test your beer for the precursor to, to diacetyl before you proceed with next steps in, 
as you move towards packaging beer. Uh, it's, it's very critical because basically the precursor is odorless and tasteless. Uh, so you could package up a beer that tastes fine. And then after it sits in the, in the can or bottle for a few days, all of a sudden it, it just tastes like, you know, pure butter. It happens that fast. Yeah. It's, so it's passive. So like you, you have this um, precursor and it, it passively oxidizes on its own, you know, with obviously with the other things that are in beer, but in, into this extremely flavorful compound. So we go from something that is in such minute amounts and is not a flavor active compound to something that we taste very intensely in the single digit parts per billion. Uh, so that's, that's kind of why it's, a, it's an issue. Um, by itself, like most people aren't, don't find acetyl to be unpleasant because it smells like butter. You know, it's what we use to flavor microwave popcorn. You know, it's, it smells, we're mammals. It smells good. But in beer, it becomes overwhelming really quickly. And it really takes away from a flavor profile um, that, the, that the brewer may intend, especially when we're talking about hoppy beer. Like you don't really want like all those, bright citrus and pine flavors and butter, right? Uh, so what do you do to prevent that? The way you find that is by heating the beer up. Okay. So yeah, so when you heat the beer up in a, uh, you can force that precursor to convert because heat speeds up chemical processes, basically chemical reactions. So you heat it up and then cool it down and, and kind of smell it and see if it's there. Uh, so that's, Really important test if you're out there home brewing, it's something you should be doing. And problem though is that when you heat the beer up, you're also causing other things to get kind of toasty flavors and uh, it can get kind of confusing and muddled, right? So it yeah. can be tough. So we did some things really uh, limited that uh, and kind of improved the improved our ability to perform that test. Uh, so that that was fun. And then uh, yeah, so. What causes that? So it's, it's a natural byproduct of yeast. So a lot of people like to think of, of yeast as like, okay, it eats sugar and it poops out CO2 and ethanol, right? And yeah, for the most part in fermentation, that's what's happening. Nicole, let's, let's keep it PG here, Nicole. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it is a living microorganism yep. and it's extremely complex. Like, um, you know, it, it has hopes, it has dreams, it has the life it wants to live, right? So uh, it's, it's not a machine, it's not a robot. So when uh, those yeast cells are doing a lot of other things um, during fermentation and, and before and after. So um, when the yeast first hits that super sweet uh, wort, it kind of checks out to the, it checks out its environment and while normally it wouldn't produce ethanol in an anaerobic, so an oxygen-free environment, it's like, wow, it's a lot of sugar. And it, something called the Crabtree effect happens. And it's like, okay, we're going to ferment, right? In order to prepare itself for that, it makes some changes to its cell wall and it gets ready to replicate pretty aggressively. Uh, and then kind of part of that phase is producing the precursor to dicetyl. Okay. Uh, so that precursor kind of goes out there and it can't, it doesn't really do anything with the precursor, but when that precursor changes to diacetyl, um, so we're talking like later in the fermentation, when that precursor has had time to convert, it'll pick that back up because it can get some energy out of it. So it's something that yeast kind of go back to late in fermentation, uh, and get some energy out of it. And what they change it into is something that same as the precursor, it's still there in the same amount, but it's the flavor threshold of that compound is different. So you don't smell or taste it. You know, it's a, it's a pretty common issue for breweries and for home brewers. You know, if your, if your yeast gives up a little bit too soon, uh, stuff like that. And it's definitely strain dependent too. Some strains are going to produce more, not really produce more, but uptake less uh, as part of the problem than others. But uh, this has been a new issue again because, you know, we've known about this for hundreds of years in the brewing industry and have mitigated it. With some changes that have been happening in hop growing and hop, hop technologies, basically, yeah. Yeah, hop, okay. agri hop agricultural practices, we've seen 
an uptick of issues with dicetyl. So what seems to be happening uh, is that there are enzymes either native to the hops or coming in on the hops in some other way. So it could be, you know, a different microbiological agent. Most of the researchers are pointing to enzymes that are coming from the hops, um, but it's not 100% yet. And those, when you aggressively dry hop, um, those enzymes are able to act on the complex sugars that are left in the beer. Mm. And that frees up some simpler sugars like maltose and glucose, which the, ye- which the little bit of yeast that's left can kind of grab onto. We see some very minute re-fermentations happening during the dry hop phase um, that then uh, can cause the yeast to attempt to replicate a bit and then produce the precursor to dicetyl. Uh, so when you hear people talk about hop creep, that's, that's what's going on. Um, you're getting a, uh, you're getting some of those complex sugars that yeast normally wouldn't eat broken down into something they can eat. They eat it. It makes the beer drier. It makes the body thinner, but it can also produce, um, Dicetyl, which is an, an even bigger problem in terms of flavor. Yeah. Uh, so that's something that breweries have been comp- con- contending with for the last four or five years. And there's a lot of research going on right now. Like, why did this all of a sudden become a problem? You know, so um, it's really interesting. Those free CBC talks that anyone can access, by the way, we're covering that quite a bit this year. Very cool. That's great information. So do you do a lot of researching of ingredients and kind of designing recipes for the brewers? I don't do a lot of recipe design, but I do a lot of uh, of research and kind of like just paying attention to studies that are being published and what's going on in terms of our understanding of, of these kind of flavor developments. So that sometimes I, I've tried to design some experiments or participate in, in that kind of thing, but you know, we're, we're a super busy brewery. So it yeah. uh, doesn't always happen. You know, it sounds like you enjoy research and, you know, some tough tasks that you need to really kind of dive into. So much like Sam Caljoon of Dogfish, you were a journalism major. Do you think that kind of plays into some of this? Uh, perhaps, yeah. I think, um, you know, there is there is an aspect of, of being attracted to journalism. Like I was, I kind of wanted, when I was, when I set out studying, studying that, I kind of, I was already studying a lot of creative writing and I uh, I wanted to really like, do some like beat reporting and then do some investigative and like deeper journalism on the side. Like I was really inspired by, uh, the new journalism, which is just like podcasting. <laughs> no, you know, complete, complete immersion into the world that you're covering. Right. So that, um, you know, kind of like Tom Wolf kind of style. Yeah. Right. Uh, so that I think that kind of interest that I have, like I like to go like I like to like learn a lot about something small and like try to make it something that uh, other people can understand. So that's the other aspect of my job uh, is that I, I do uh, teach uh, beer to our service staff. Yeah, that's where I get to get that outlet as well. Yeah, so I think there is that kind of project-based, like total immersion and whatever the topic of the day is. So yeah, that that does kind of get me excited. What was that conversation like when you were like, "Mom and Dad, uh, you know, I'm a journalism major, but I'm going to go ahead and learn everything about beer." <laughs> yeah, when I actually found out that I got the job at the Trappist over Thanksgiving, and I was actually visiting my parents. Because uh, they had they had moved up to Alaska a couple of years before, of oh, all well. places. But uh, we were up there visiting, and I found out that I got the job, and I was so excited, and told them, and they were just like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what I was hoping to hear. Yeah. They're like, "We don't want you bartending in downtown Oakland," you know. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Which, like, at the time was like, I mean downtown Oakland growing up was, you know, just ghost town boarded up buildings, you know, all these buildings that were damaged by the Loma Prieta earthquake that never got built up that were, they've already been abandoned anyway because of the way the economic downturn in the seventies hit Oakland. 
you know, if you go to downtown Oakland now, uh, it's just, you know, so much going on nightlife, great, great restaurants, amazing bars. uh, And the Trappist Mm -hmm. was part of an early wave of that and still is a pretty cool bar. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the locations of Alvarado street. I mean, we have Monterey, um, I think that is where we're talking more tasting room and, and sitting and eating, right? Um, that is just south of San Jose. It's uh, It says, California's rugged central coast. It's Cannery Row, the one-time center of sardine packing industry, was immortalized by novelist John Steinbeck. Exactly. Uh, and so, then you have the brewery. The manufacturing, yeah, is in, in Salinas. So talk to me about that. Yeah, so we have we have um, kind of three different locations. So the the Monterey location, which is on Alvarado Street, that is the that's the first location. Uh, we just had our anniversary. It's on Cinco de Mayo, uh, so six years. So that was a that was the first location, and we still brew beer there. Uh, it's a really busy restaurant. There's a beer garden, full service restaurant, and at the brewery there. And then we have our production facility that opened just um, about two and a half or three years later. So um, our owner, JC Hill, uh, and uh, his family were very, very busy. Um, Basically, I've never stopped continuing expanding the business uh, aggressively. So that the production facility opened three years ago and since has expanded into two additional cellars. We just installed top-of-the-line canning setup. It's a Crohn's Craft Mate. Uh, it's one of very few in the, in the country so far, um, and uh, we're really excited about that. Yeah, so anyway, uh, we have awesome brewery and uh, tasting room in Salinas. Uh, and then there's also what opened in December of 2000, 2018, I guess it would be, was Yeast of Eden. Uh, so Yeast of Eden is our kind of funky and sour beer offshoot, uh, which has a product share some production space in Salinas. There's kind of a funky corridor off to one side of the brewery uh, with all of our barrels. Um, But uh, we, that uh, opened as a brew pub and it's kind of a more high end restaurant. We have a fantastic, we opened with one fantastic chef. We've turned to a new fantastic chef. Their brewery came online there in March. There's like a private dining room with a bunch of small fooders in it, which is really cool. That is cool. But yeah, uh, that's that's been really fun to just kind of watch develop and blossom over the the past uh, year, year and a half. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of our our, our family of of restaurants and breweries. Salinas is a really cool place. You know, a lot of folks would just kind of drive through it on the 101. Uh, it is a very important agricultural town. You know, if you're living in most of the country, uh, especially in the in the north, all winter long, when you find lettuce uh, or strawberries at your market, they probably came from Salinas. Uh, so I've been staying in Salinas and I drive to work through a field. You know, there's strawberries year-round the way they have it set up so that they get ripe strawberries you know, most of the year. And that's where Dole is based there, right? Dole vegetables, Dole fruit. I, I, think. I think so. Um, Taylor, Taylor made farms. Uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of farms that are, that are based in Salinas. Uh, and then the whole Salinas Valley, you know, that extends South from, from Salinas is majorly fertile. It was like, you know, it was like an ancient. So it's like wine country, Monterey and all there too. Yeah. So that's, sort of yeah as you go south in the valley it gets hotter and hotter there's some of the monterey wine producers a little more towards the coast yeah and monterey is a really really beautiful place that's where uh the monterey bay aquarium is obviously so if you're ever planning a trip out to california and you're gonna be in the bay area you know drive south a couple hours monterey's awesome visit the pub go to the aquarium and then drive south go to big sur you know, there's been like three different times that I turned on my computer, you know, you have like the, the random background screen that shows up, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I've been like, wait a minute. It's, it's big, sir. You know, it's, I'm like, I'm like, this is where I live. <laughs> this is where I, go. I saw, you know what? The other day 
I it had popped up on the background of my computer and I'm looking at it and it said Big Sur, California on the bottom. Exactly. Like, that's, like, that's where I go for my after work hike. <laughs> so, like, that doesn't suck. It does not suck. Yeah. So let's talk real quick. The, uh, the Monterey Beer Garden, right? I mean, you guys are quality first and that's why you were there uh, and teaching beer to your staff and, and creating that experience. I mean, that beer garden in Monterey is gorgeous. That's stunning. So when we're talking flavors and, and delicious beer, I mean, we're also pairing that with a stunning um, outdoor area. And, and it's just, you guys have this experience, you know, not only is it the good quality food and beer, but it's the, the aesthetic of it, as well as the, the teaching that you folks are doing to the consumer. Absolutely. It's pretty unbelievable. I obviously like to get sidetracked and nerd out about the dorky details about beer, but uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm teaching our staff, I always try to bring it back to the customer experience, right? Like you, it's important to know a lot of background about beer, but what are you going to translate to the customer about that? Right. Uh, so I make sure that they can understand you know, the questions about the, the beers that are going to come up, but then also find ways to like sneak beer knowledge bombs in with their service. Uh, so I'm always finding ways to help people with that and educate consumers because, you know, we always get people that are like, Oh, I don't like hoppy beer. Well, that's, there's usually something to unpack there. You know, sometimes they, they don't like hop aroma, but more often than not, people are conflating bitterness with things that they might otherwise like about hoppy beer. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, along with that, along with our awesome, awesome staff and the beautiful environment and the really, really good beer, uh, the food's pretty dope too. Chef's got it going on. So <laughs> yeah, I uh, definitely enjoyed a few, um, amazing sessions, uh, at, at Alvarado before, uh, I ever went to work there. So. Very cool. Real quick, you know, kind of going back to what you just mentioned there about, you know, nerding out about the beer and, and people saying maybe they don't like it. I had worked for a brewery in college and, you know, in the, the process of training there and understanding their beer and their food and everything, you know, a lot of times, you know, even still I'll, I'll talk to people and say, you know, why aren't you having a beer? Why are you drinking that? And I say, well, I don't like beer. I'm like, are right, you going to stop right there? Because that's not a thing. You just haven't had the right beer yet. There is a beer for everybody. And I don't want to hear your shit about, I don't like beer. Cause again, it's just not a thing. So how do you, yeah, you come across I absolutely that? agree. Um, yeah, I definitely think that there is a beer for everybody unless you, you know, literally can't see the or whatever. Um, sure. but in terms of flavor there, there really is a beer for everybody. I think that especially now with, you know, you, you go to like a new brewery nowadays and there might be 10 IPAs, <laughs> you know, and that might be it. Yep. So especially now, I think, uh, there is less choice sometimes. I think, uh, I think consumers, um, uh, maybe have had bad experiences. Um, you know, you think about when you first get into anything, right? Like, it could be, you don't know what you don't, it know. could be sauerkraut, you know, like, Oh, I heard about yeah. the sauerkraut. I'm going to buy one at the store. You go to the store and you kind of look at the options and you're just like, wow, there's a lot of different sauerkrauts. I'm just going to buy this one. And you know, maybe it sucks. And then you're like, Oh, I don't like sauerkraut. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's a great point. So you, know, you never have sauerkraut. You're never going to eat sauerkraut again. Cause you think you don't like it. Uh, so I think people definitely have that experience because, you know, when you first think to try a craft beer, you're probably shopping at a liquor store. It probably came through a distributor. It probably sat somewhere hot. It's probably old. So that beer already has all those things going against it in terms of changing its original flavor. And then you drink it yeah. and, you know, guess what? You don't like it very much because it doesn't taste good. Or maybe you're like, oh, this is fine but it's not fine enough to prompt you to go buy it again. Right. So I think a lot of people develop a, a negative view of beer this way. Um, cause they get burned and they're like, Oh, I don't like those craft beers. Right. I think that was definitely true for, for some, uh, you know, people that are more in their like, uh, fifties and sixties right now, because like, the 
or even in their forties, because in the, in the nineties, quality problems in craft beer were, were abysmally bad, like major problems. <laughs> Today, quality overall is better. Uh, and I think that uh, consumers also recognize, you know, beer drinkers anyway, really recognize some of those markers of quality a little bit better. But yeah, so that's, that's one problem. The perception that, you know, all craft beer is all IPA. Um, but when you look closely at the flavor of beer and, and all the styles that are available, it is inarguably the most complex and most wide ranging set of flavors that you can find of any alcoholic beverage. Yeah. Wine has, has lots of flavors, but not as many flavors or there are fewer uh, flavor active compounds recorded in wine than there are in beer. Right. Uh, part of that is that Boom. base beer has four ingredients, right? Uh, wine, yeah. you have grapes and, and yeast, you know? So we have four ingredients to play with uh, and lots of different techniques and lots of different techniques in producing the ingredients for beer. Uh, and then on top of that, we can add whatever we want to beer. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> we can yep. add coconut. Yep. We can add coconut. We can add coffee. We can add berries. We can add, you know, add lobster. <laughs> we can add a, 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 you know, Douglas fir tree. Fried chicken sandwiches. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> but, exactly. uh, some of, some of those things are more useful than others. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So it's literally endless what you can do with the flavor profile of beer. They're, they're really, you know, beer is, is an engineered product. You know, uh, a brewer is thinking about what flavor they want to achieve and then finding ways to get there. You know, Brute IPA is a great example of that. Like, concerned about it, was like, I want all these flavors. I want no body in my beer. I want it to be thin uh, and came yep. up with this idea that became a fad. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a different kind of approach to, to beer making. So right now, obviously everybody's focused on how do we get hop aroma and less bitterness. And I think that all those people that are like, I don't like IPA. Well, this isn't, you know, this isn't late nineties, early two thousands, San Diego style IPA that is, is really bitter. Even San Diego style IPAs nowadays aren't that bitter. Uh, but uh, those old school ones certainly are. Like this isn't, I, and I love those beers. You know, I love Stone IPA, but yep. it's bitter. You know, it's, it's super bitter. Yeah. We compare those to the newer IPAs that are coming out now. And especially when you just get into the juicy, hazy IPA and like, you have to look for the bitterness, you know, it's, it, they tend to be right. way lower and you have all these like fruity hop aromas and it drinks like a, more like a Mai Tai or a cocktail than what somebody's preconceived notion of an IPA is. So yeah, I think it's yeah. exciting to try to find ways to bring people around to that. Try different kinds of sauerkraut people. That's what <laughs> exactly. she's saying. Don't give up. You don't Nicole, like tell me real quick. <laughs> Real quick about the uh, the Skittles test or the test you can do with kind of any candy. Yeah. Okay. So um, people like to talk about this. This is um, one thing that I like to do whenever I'm doing any kind of training for uh, palate training um, is to kind of awaken people to the difference between aroma and taste. This is really important, actually, when we what we were just talking about, you know, people not liking those bitter beers, right? Bitterness is a taste, a tongue taste. So we experience that through our taste buds. But all those aromas uh, uh, that we get from hops, the citrus and the uh, guava and all that stuff, those are all aromas. Our brain tricks our, uh, tricks, our, tricks us into thinking that those flavors are coming from our mouths, but they're not. Those um, are, our sense of smell is all in our, our nasal cavity. So People always say, oh, you know, blah, 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 tastes like chicken. It's like, well, no, it doesn't taste like chicken. It smells like chicken. Uh, so if you've ever been sick and really stuffed up and you say, I can't taste anything, right? You can taste just fine. I put down, I remember being a like late teenager and like putting down half of a thing of sour gummy, gummy worms when I was sick because like I could taste that. It was sweet and sour, a little salty, like. I could taste those things. Um, but 
I couldn't smell what flavor it was. Right. Uh, if you take any candy, uh, I like, I bought the last cases of riddle skittles uh, where the color doesn't match the flavor because that really messes with people even more never seen those yeah if you take something like that you know like a hard candy works well because it doesn't really have a smell on its own and you, you can cut off your sense of smell so pinch your nose you hold your breath uh and it's that's the hardest part is that you can't breathe out you actually have to consciously think about not breathing out so you pop the candy in your mouth Make sure your lips are sealed, pinch your nose, uh, and then consciously focus on keeping your breath in your lungs and not breathing out and chew up the Skittle and just kind of like see what you can perceive, right? Uh, And as you're um, chewing that up, you're going to definitely notice, um, you know, the tongue taste aspect. After a few seconds, I don't last very long. I'm not a swimmer. <laughs> after, after a few seconds, you know, like 10 seconds or whatever of holding your breath, chewing it up, you're gonna, you let go of your nose and breathe out through your nose. And all of a sudden, you get this huge flood of aroma. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, this is strawberry, you know? Whereas before, all you could taste was sweet, sour, maybe a little salty because most candy has a little salt to it. And you can do this with literally anything. I think candy works best because, um, it doesn't have, you know, hard candies don't have a lot of aroma until you, uh, until you wet them, Yeah. but it's fine. You can, it's family friendly. You know, this is isn't just about beer. It's about the five senses. It'll kind of change your perspective on, on how you interact with, with food and drink. Uh, and it helps explain, you know, like, those instances of things that have smell one way and then you put them in your mouth and they taste totally different. Right. Uh, sweetness is a big, yeah. a big issue with this. So this is something that I had to, I did a lot, uh, actually when I was working at the Trappist was teach people the difference between sweet sweetness as a taste and aromas that give you the impression of sweetness. So, um, you might smell, uh, like, a Flavored mineral water is a really good example of this, like La Croix or whatever. Uh, you know, it, uh, yeah, you're drinking one right now. Look at that. <laughs> you know, when we're adults, we've had that experience of like smelling like that orange candy smell and then having something sweet. And you smell that smell. And then when you put it in your mouth, it's sweet. You smell the smell and it's sweet. You smell it, it's sweet. You smell it, it's sweet. And their brain gets that conditioning over and over again so much that by the time you're an adult, you smell that and your brain just skips straight to sweet. Like it just, you get an impression of sweetness. Uh, that is, even though it's not, and then you can almost picture yourself where you were when you had it smelled it or tasted. Yeah, exactly. So, um, it's just kind of like, you know, our brains are very efficient. (laughs) Um, we like when we have an experience over and over again, it, it just likes to jump to conclusions. It uses less energy for our brain to do that. So our brain can think about something else instead. Lazy ass brains. Exactly. <laughs> this is why it's so hard to take apart things like, you know, prejudices, because this is the same thing that our brain's doing, right? You need to unlearn. Yeah. Unlearning is hard. Uh, but uh, if you gave, if you, I don't know if you've ever given one of those laquas to your, to your daughters, uh, but uh, I remember being a little kid and drinking a mountain berry flavored arrowhead sparkling water. And I smelled it. And I was like, Oh, this smells so good. It's going to be awesome. And then I put it in my mouth and it was salty and bitter. And then it was just horrified. Uh, right. Um, because when you're a kid, this is a mean trick. Exactly. When you're a kid, you're not making that connection. You're still tasting those things separately. You've smelled that fake berry flavor enough that you've grown to expect it to be sweet. So it's an even bigger bummer, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's like, uh, when you're, when you're young and innocent and you're, you're, you're still learning and your sensor, your senses are still separated and stronger. The same thing. So it tastes good. So a lot of people think that like things like, uh, Belgian saisons or Belgian triples are sweet because of this phenomenon. Like, Belgian triples and saisons should be very dry. A lot of American made ones tend to be sweeter, but uh, if you get them from Belgium, they're extremely dry, but they give that impression of sweetness because of the orange marmalade and, you know, light. The aroma. Apple and pear esters. Exactly. Those aromas 
trick you into thinking that they're sweet. Is this uh, considered organoleptic testing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be a really fancy word for it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you're just you know, tests involving sense organs. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. I'm not eating candy. You I'm doing organoleptic testing. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it makes it sound better. It's more fancy than the Skittles test. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I appreciate you here. Um, real quick, you know, where do you travel to? Where do you get um, some of your inspiration from? Ah, yeah, I love traveling. I'm. I like to. I just like to get around anywhere I can. I'm hoping to make a longer trek into Germany in the near future. Uh, visit some important beer towns that I haven't made it to yet. Um, I think I'm going to wait until there's a year that I can maybe maybe head to Oktoberfest. I've really been enjoying going to Portugal. I uh, have Portuguese heritage and I've been working on, on getting a little bit uh, more fluent in Portuguese. So I've enjoyed going there. I've been involved with a little beer fest there called Iberian Awards. That's been uh, awesome uh, to meet folks in this like kind of brand new craft beer scene uh, that's, that's happening in Portugal. Brazil has amazing beer culture. Uh, people are so yep. stoked. People are moving so fast uh, in terms of improving quality and just uh, creating this really vibrant craft beer scene in several different cities. And yeah, so I like, I like to go to the places where there's interesting beer stuff going on for sure. Belgium's always a favorite. Yeah. I like to, I like to move around. I'm actually using some of this time when we can't travel to uh, look into like what I want to do when I can travel again. Uh, so plan some of those trips, you know, it's like a little, as opposed to just booking a trip and then a few days before like, Oh shit, we didn't even think about what we're going to do when we get there. Exactly. Exactly. I can take my notes and like, it'll be ready to go. And when we get the opportunity and again, to, to do some of that travel and you really get a lot out of it. It kind of actually helps with the cabin fever a little bit because, you know, it's like the little armchair tourism. And nowadays it's so yeah. easy to do research. And then you're on like, you know, Google Street View and and then you can like look up some recipes. And, Peeking in windows. Yeah you, yeah, you can look up some recipes and like, you know, I've been doing like French night and Spanish tapas night and, you know, Japanese food. We've been learning about Japanese food. Nathan, uh, my uh -huh. husband's really good at uh, making some... Uh, he, South Indian food specifically he got really into that with some roommates he had. Uh, so yeah, so okay. we've been, we've been traveling uh, from our dining table for now, but I'm looking forward to being able to do the real thing again. Love it. Yeah. Well, all the researching that you like to do and all that stuff. And, and you said maybe being a detective, or do you watch CSI is like <laughs> some of those like detective shows? Is that always on speed dial there? <laughs> I am a Law and Order junkie. I like all I like all of the Law and Orders, but SVU is my favorite. <laughs> I see. I knew it. You said SVU is your yeah. favorite. Is that the one with uh, iced tea? Yeah, exactly. Like those iced tea one-liners just keep me coming back for more. <laughs> He's got good memes, and I guess you got to pay you know homage out there to the Cali folks. So, you know. Exactly. Oh, well, hey, uh, what's in your fridge right now? Oh, so much. <laughs> We, yeah. uh, we've been uh, we've been enjoying ordering from breweries because uh, in our state um, that's something that happened right away is that the our alcohol board of control is like direct consumer that's cool <laughs> and I'm like all right it's amazing uh, it's a little it's a lot of beer for us to get uh, especially because Nate's been home brewing also so we have uh, to get a whole case of beer we've ordered from Hen House and Cellar Maker. Um, I went and did a pickup down at Alvarado because I mean, let's be real. I work at that brewery because I love our beer, you know? So yeah, yeah. I've been filling it out with some, uh, smaller purchases. There's a, a small beer bar here that's been doing a lot to go sales. So, uh, uh -huh. getting some other beers from my friends at Temescal and Beachwood and then some, I don't know, interesting imports that they've been getting, uh, so yeah, then, uh, I found some my box. Uh, so that was exciting. Okay. Um, yeah. it's about the only time of year I want to drink that style. I mean, obviously it's the right time, but, uh, something yeah. about the warm day and cold night just makes you want to drink a pale sweet beer. <laughs> so. I'm with you next to the fire, you know, very yeah. cool. Well, Nicole, 
You are phenomenal. You're a trailblazer. You are a wealth of knowledge. Uh, my wife and I want your autograph. Aww. <laughs> uh, we'd love to come have a beer with you and your husband. So, you know. Whenever you make it out here. Awesome. I well, appreciate you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Cheers. Cheers to you. Take care. All right, that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. I hope you find this valuable. Please follow on Spotify or subscribe on Apple. And while you're at Apple, please go ahead and give us a five-star rating. It helps us get noticed among the craft beverage community there. Thank you. Cheers and beer. Mighty things.